0: Well, I was telling the worship team this morning as we practiced that my schedule for my sermons is planned out, at least since I've been doing Isaiah, it's been planned out for anywhere from six months to a year. And uh, this specific Sunday's topic and the the scripture passage that we're looking at for this particular Sunday was picked back before Christmas. So this is May, so it's been almost six months and I was amazed as we were worshiping and practicing this morning, as we were singing the songs, because it was like God. <laughs> they didn't know what my sermon was going to be, but the songs that they picked are just a perfect complement to what um, to what the Lord has put on my heart to share. So that's number one. I want you to t- I want you to know that I believe with all of my heart that this is a God ordained thing, that God has put in my heart the words that need to be said, and God proved that by bringing all the music together and all of the other things that we've done thus far. Now, we've already read the words of Isaiah 55. There are 13 verses. I didn't want to take time in my sermon to do that, but I did want to um, encourage you this morning to take notes. Why? Because what I'm about to say is profound and wonderful, glorious, and you need to remember it. Uh, Eh, It's not about me, it's about him. How many of you people know what the Great Commission is? We talked about the Great Commandment already. The great commandment was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. What's the great commission? Joyce? Go out, make Go out and make disciples in the name of the Lord. Matthew chapter 28. How many of you intentionally went out this week with the intent of winning somebody to Jesus? Raise your hand if you did. Look around, folks. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I'm telling you, you're walking in disobedience. It's between you and God, not between you and me. But you're walking in disobedience if you are not intentionally trying to win someone to Christ. That doesn't mean you knock somebody down and make them sit there and listen to you while you recite, you know, Matthew chapter 17 or whatever, but you have to be constantly looking for opportunities to speak truth into someone's life so that they can receive God into their life and receive the forgiveness that we just sang about and the, for the, the removal of the stain and the hope and all of the things that we sang about this morning. We enjoy it wonderfully, but for whatever reason, the enemy of our souls has done a wonderful job of stymieing us when it comes to actually going out and being evangelists. That word evangelism scares the Forgive the expression, the bejesus out of people. Okay? It scares people when they say, be an evangelist. Oh, I don't have that gifting. I'm called to be a, a servant in the church, but I'm not gifted to be an evangelist. Bunk, every single one of you have been commanded by God's word to be evangelists. Now, some are specifically called to be vocationally evangelists. I will grant you that. But every person who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior has a responsibility before God to be intentionally watching for opportunities to speak truth into people's lives. Because, well, before I go there, let me say this. Another thing that you need to be aware of, and we talked about this last week when Renee and I gave our testimony after the district assembly, at 10.02, every single day, Monday through Sunday my alarm on my phone and watch go off. And when I do, and when it does, I look at the screen and it says, pray for the harvest. My wife has the same alarm set on hers. Numerous people across the state of Alaska have theirs set for the same time. And people are literally around the world have set an alarm for their time zone when 10.02 a.m. happens the alarm goes off. Renee, do you remember what the scripture verse was that goes with that? I'm sorry, Luke ten two two. Luke ten two. Somebody read Luke ten two. Just open it up because I, I don't have it. We'll take a moment for somebody to find it. Hint, hint. I have a Bible with you at church because this is important. I'm going to ask you probably, I I would encourage you, especially today's sermon, write the notes inside your Bible so that you'll have them with you whenever you read this scripture. Luke 10, 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest... To what? Send out workers into his harvest field. To send out workers into His harvest field. Luke 10:2. So every day at 10:02, I am reminded to obey that commandment, to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that He would send har- harvesters, workers out into the field, to bring in lost souls. But I include in my prayer every single day, help me not to just encourage others to do it, but help me to be a harvester myself. Those of you who are board members, when you get your package, please remember this sermon. Because <laughs> one of the questions is, does your pastor encourage and promote evangelism? Is your pastor a model when w- w- of evangelism, and quite honestly, I will be very frank with you. It's been a long time—about a year—since anyone has said yes when I have been intentional about offering Christ. Does that mean I haven't been speaking about Christ to people? Except not just in this time, but you know, out in the world. No, I have been intentional, but it's not my job to harvest. It's my job to be ready. When the seed, or when the fruit is ready to be plucked, okay? And that's what I'm encouraging you this morning to do. Be prepared. First Peter says, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. It doesn't say, go out and knock people over the head and make them listen to you while you give your five-minute testimony. It says, be prepared so that when you are asked you are able to give an answer about the hope that is within you. Those are powerful words, scary words for some. But if we say we are Christians, and if we say we believe that God the Holy Spirit is present with us every moment of every day, no matter where we go, all you have to do when those moments arise is say, I don't know what to say, And I guarantee you, if you pray that, the words will flow. Now, if you've never read the Word of God, kind of hard for him to pull stuff out that ain't in there. But, if you've read the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of bringing what you've read to your mind in the moment that's necessary. And so, we're going to study this morning, in a Bible study fashion, But there won't be a lot of discussion on your part. (laughs) More lecture. But if you have questions, ask them. But because of time, I don't have a lot of time for 13 verses for an in-depth discussion. But I want you to, to seriously consider getting your Bible out and opening it to Isaiah 55 and writing in the margins some of the things we're going to talk about this morning. Why? Because when God brings you someone who's ripe for the harvest... If nothing else, you will be able to open to Isaiah 55 and look at your notes and just talk with them about what the Word of God says, like I'm about to do for you now. Now, my prayer for this morning was, God, if there's anyone in the service who doesn't know you, may the words of my mouth guide them and lead them to the truth, and may I get the opportunity to harvest As I look around this congregation, I'm not seeing anybody that I know of that needs Jesus. I think you all have Jesus in your heart. But the second intent of this was empowerment. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4 tells me, the pastor, that my job is to equip the workers to go out and do the work. So that's what I'm doing this morning. I'm equipping you. Now, if you choose not to pick up the tool, that's your business. And you don't answer to me about it. You answer to God. But I'm giving you the opportunity at this moment. Notice I've taken a lot of time to give you opportunity to pull your Bible out and open to 55 and get a pen that works. Get your glasses on. And now we will start. Isaiah chapter 55. First, the first verse of chapter 55. Notice there are four different times that the same word appears. Come, 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 come. God doesn't waste parchment. If you remember when this was written, parchment was very, very, very costly. So why would God the Holy Spirit prompt the the prophet to waste parchment by saying the same thing four times in one sentence? Probably because it's important. So what is being said here? First phrase, whoever has thirst. That doesn't mean just Christians. That means every human being who has thirst, what are they supposed to do? Come to the source that can quench that thirst. That's the second phrase of verse 1. The next thing that's kind of interesting is the third and fourth stanza or line of verse 1. He who has no money, come buy so you can eat. What? How can you buy if you don't have money? Well, let's move on and maybe we'll get an answer. Come buy wine and milk without money, and without price. There is a statement here that says, if you are thirsty, you need to take action. If you are thirsty, there is a resource available for you to quench that thirst. But you need to take action. And if you take action, it ain't going to cost you nothing, but you will get your thirst quenched. Here's another thing that slipped by me until I was reading someone else's thoughts on this when I was reading the commentaries. Look what it says. If you're thirsty, come to the water. But then it says, when you come to buy, buy wine and milk. See, water is cheap and plentiful and anyone can get water, but it's kind of expensive to get wine and milk, especially in that day and age, because it had to be preserved, it had to be processed. And so this statement here is, not only can you find quenching of your thirst by coming to the source of the waters, and it's not going to cost you anything, but when you get there, you ain't getting just water, you're getting something valuable. Something that is not only satisfying to your thirst, but that's pleasant and enriching and has a beautiful taste. That's one verse of 13. See why we're going to be here for just a little bit. I promise we're not going to do one at a time each time, but that one was just too rich. Now verse 2. On my In my Bible, it's on the third line of verse 2. It says, listen diligently to me. What does your Bible say? Listen to me. NLT. Just listen to me. Listen, listen, hearken. Anybody else? Incline your ear. Incline your ear. Uh, the commentator named Albert Mottier that I read from said the literally, if you were just to do a literal translation from this it it means listen listeningly listen listeningly be active and intentional diligent engaged with your listening to whom are you listening? to me who is me? I would say it's to the prophet, the one speaking. So if you are trying to speak to somebody about their soul, and they ask you about the hope that is within you, you can turn to Isaiah 55, and in just these two verses, you can say to them, God accepts all people, God is the source that quenches all thirst, it ain't gonna cost you a dime to get your thirst quenched, and when you get it quenched, you're going to find out that it's much more value than you could ever imagine, and it'll be pleasant, and it'll be joyful. And on top of that, you but 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 on top not on top of, but in in that active process, it is required of you to take some action. You have to come, you have to intentionally make a transaction, buy, and you have to actively and diligently and faithfully and listeningly listen to the words. Going down into verse 3, incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul can live. These words bring truth, I, I mean, bring life. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now, what does that mean? I mean, I know who David is. I know what the the idea of steadfast, sure love is, and I know that it's what an everlasting covenant is, but what does that mean when I read it and I'm trying to share it with somebody else? Who is David? Who is he? King David. David. What is King David most famous for other than killing the giant with a slingshot? Killing Bathsheba's husband because he wanted her and he got her pregnant and he's going to get caught. And then the prophet Nathan came to him and told him a little story about a guy who had only one little sheep. And the neighbor came and stole the sheep and killed it so that he could feed his guests. And David went, kill my boy! And Nathan said, you're the guy. So David did one of the most heinous, gross, disgusting, vile things you could ever do. He stole another man's wife and then killed him and then lied about it. Using his position of authority to do all of it. And God loves him with an everlasting, steadfast love and entered into everlasting covenant. What was the covenant that he entered into David? That his descendants would always hold on God's throne. So God took a man who did vile, heinous, disgusting things in the world's eyes, especially in God's eyes, but in the world's eyes, and he not only forgave him, But he made covenant with this man and said, I will bring about blessing through you and your line, even though you're a vile, disgusting sinner. You hearing any opportunity here to share your faith with somebody? Now, verse 4 and 5 says, Behold, I made him a witness to the people's. A leader and a commander of the peoples. And then verse 5 says, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Oh, I hate it when there's pronouns and not giving me a clear understanding of what's being talked about here. So what does that mean? Hmm. Well, scholars tell us that the him and the you in these two verses are the, the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus. And we don't have time this morning to go in deep with this. Just know that the you and the your and the him in verse four and five are talking about the Messiah. And study that later. Now, verse six and seven and eight and nine. These are kind of like stanzas in a poem or stanzas in a, in a, in a, in a song. Verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Right there in verses 6 and 7, you have an outline that easily tells someone how they can become a Christian. There are four words. Seek. Call. Forsake. Return. Seek whom? The Lord. Call out to Him. And I'll talk more about call in just a second. Forsake. What are you forsaking? Your wickedness. And return to Him. Have you ever heard the term confession and repentance? Confess your sins and repent of your sins forsake your way and return to God. Pretty much the same thing, just a different way of saying it. But what is this call upon him? Because I can think about it in in Acts, it says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that what we're talking about? So I just cry out the name Jesus and I'm saved? Mm. How many people are in a car accident and scream, Jesus! Are they saved? If they've never had a relationship with God before, are they saved at that moment? according to any theology I understand or know. So what does it mean when it says call upon the Lord or call upon him? If you were to take the time, you could go and look up the story of Abraham and you could also look in Psalms. And again, I don't have time to give you all of this, but the this word call has a twofold meaning. Number one, it means to acknowledge in worship. In other words, I stand in the presence of the Almighty and I acknowledge I am worshiping you and you alone. There is no one but you. I'm calling on you, O oh Lord. Another aspect of this word call is appealing to in times of need. Now, I guess if a person's in a car accident and screams out, Jesus. If they're really doing that as a prayer and not just an expletive, then it could indeed be calling out. I had a friend who served as a missionary to the Philippines many, many years ago, and her name was Liana, and her husband Byron was uh, also in service there in the Philippines, and she was sharing with us one time that when she was in labor with their first child, her husband got mad at her. Because as she's laboring in her, in her first pregnancy, she's screaming out in that labor room, Jesus! Jesus! And her husband got mad because she was taking the name of the Lord in vain. And when they talked about it later, she said, I wasn't taking his name in vain. I wasn't cursing or using it as an expletive. I was crying out to the only one that I knew to cry out to who could help me. And see, that's what this is talking about. When you say you've got to call on the Lord while he can be found or while he is near, it's you acknowledge that he's worthy of worship and you acknowledge that he's your source when you have a need. So you he is the source. He is the one you call to. When you call to him, he expects you to turn away from your wickedness and turn to him. But there's this other thing at the beginning of chapter of verse 6 that's kind of sticky. Seek the Lord while he may be found. See, you don't get to call the shots about when you get to seek him. No one can come to the Lord unless the Lord first draws them. That's scripture. Can't tell you what exact reference it is, but that's scripture. So the only time a human being is going to even be interested in having any type of relationship with God is when God is literally wooing and drawing that person. And if God is intentionally wooing and drawing you at the moment and you feel your heart strangely warm and you feel drawn to this hope that you see in your friend and you ask about it, that's the time to respond. Because if you don't and you walk away from that, the enemy of our souls is real good about distracting us and keeping us distracted and dissuaded, you will not necessarily have another opportunity. See, the Word of God does declare that every human being will be given opportunity to accept Christ as their Savior before their death, but they're never guaranteed more than once. Now, that's not said to scare anybody. It's just the promise of God is everyone is welcome. Everyone will be given an opportunity to make their profession of faith. Everyone will be wooed by God. But the word of God clearly says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6, to do it while he can be found, call on him while he is near. I can point to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, that says, today is the day of salvation. You don't have the promise that tomorrow God is going to be calling you and wooing you and drawing you. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want you, but this is your moment. (laughs) Do not let it pass because you have no promise that tomorrow will even come or that God will be wooing you at that moment. Now, verse 7, closing out this, this, this is the, crux of it. I mean, the rest of it we're going to look at per cursory, but this was the crux. Six and seven. What does it say at the very end? Let him return to the Lord, the one who has is sought the Lord, who called on him, who forsake his way. Let the unrighteous uh, and the uh, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts let him return, the one who's wicked the one who's sinful let him return to the Lord that he, may that he God, may have compassion on him the sinner and to our God for he will abundantly pardon two things, compassion Elsie, were you the one that, that I was talking with this week about the word compassion? no, it wasn't you obviously you don't remember it I can't remember who it was I I wanted so desperately to be able to give them credit. I can't, so just know that I was in conversation with another Christian sometime this week, and in our conversation, they shared with me that they had done a word study, and the word compassion literally means to come alongside in your agony. So what this says is, God is drawing you and wooing you and wants you to come to him and worship him and forsake your way and turn to him so God can join you in your agony. Hmm. That doesn't sound like I'm getting anything good out of this. It just means somebody's going to sit by me. Not so much. Who paid the penalty for your sins? Jesus did. How did he do it? He went through some pretty much agony stuff, didn't he? So, he came alongside you and took on the the pain and the penalty and the wrath so that you could have relationship. And look at what the promise is. Because see, when you... Forsake your sins and return to the Lord. And God comes alongside you in this period of agony. That's literally Christ being washed in the blood of Christ. That's being cleansed through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then what happens? God abundantly pardons you. I know what the word pardon means. And I know what the word abundant means. But frankly, until this week, I never thought about those two words being together. I mean, to pardon somebody means that they no longer are guilty and they're forgiven and they're cleansed of their crime and their record is expunged and blah. But how did you do that abundantly? Turn to... John chapter ten, verse ten. Somebody quickly, not to make you feel guilty or I mean God, anxious or anything, but John chapter ten, verse ten. What does it say? If you come only to steal, kill, and destroy, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In some translations, it'll say that he has come to have life and to give them abundant life. I don't have a succinct answer to give you for this but God drew that that verse to my mind when I was reading through this and meditating on it and I don't have it fully gelled for myself yet but I believe that this talk of abundant pardon isn't just simply this great wonderful forgiveness thing but that literally it's a marrying of a clean slate and the fullness of life in Christ and I don't know that I can fully explain that yet. That's something I gave to you. you can. I literally wrote in, the, my side, in, in, my, in my notes, what does this mean? Next to the words, abundantly pardoned. And then later on, as I was meditating, God said, look at John 10.10. So I wrote here, see John 10.10. I don't have an answer yet. I'm still chewing on this, and it's, it's, it's still beef jerky for me. It's not soft and mushy yet and pliable, but it's something that I can chew on for the rest of the week at least. Now, let's move on because we're, we're, we're almost there. Verses 10 and 11 are simply a powerful promise. What is the promise? God's word will never, ever fail. If God declares something, it is going to happen. Period. What's verses 12 and 13? This is the promise that in the millennium or after the time of the Messiah's coming the curse will be reversed if you remember back in Genesis after Adam and Eve willfully sinned against God all of creation went under a curse Isaiah 55 verses 12 and 13 talk about The time after the coming of the Messiah, when the curse will be reversed. And again, those last four verses, they're they're not germane to the conversation of winning somebody in the moment. Okay, So don't let them, as you're talking with somebody, distract you. Read through them and say what I just told you, and then move them back to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. Because that's the crux of the whole thing. One, two, three, four, five. All of that is saying,
1: you're a sinner,
0: but God welcomes you. And as long as you still sense the drawing and wooing of God, this is your time. Seek him. But then verse six says, and verse seven is the crux. It's where you can, I hate to say it this way, you can go for the kill. You can close the deal you can get someone on their knees and ask them to give Jesus a chance. Okay? However God leads you to do it. But if you can get them focused on Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, and show them those four words. What are the four words? You didn't write them down. Seek. Forsake. Get them to focus on those and explain to them what it means. Seeking when God is available, calling, which is acknowledging him in worship and appealing to him when you have a need. Forsaking your wickedness and your unrighteous thoughts and turning or returning to the Lord so that you can have God come alongside you in your agony and do the cleansing work that needs to be done through the blood of Christ in order that the Father can pour out on you abundant pardon. And I don't have an answer for what their questions might be. Yes, sir? So you're, not off, you're, not you're actually learning how to live so because this is being recorded and you're not on the microphone I'm going to try and restate what you said and if I get it wrong correct me you said the freedom that comes to us through this transaction is that we are no longer in bondage to the things that were that held us before. Our sinfulness, our addictions, all of the things that were part of what was our life before Christ. And what that abundance that we receive is freedom. Correct. Our habit is we don't know how to live in freedom. We don't know how to live without bondage. So we're used and I deal with not returning to that trash, not returning to the vomit, and living that freedom, and in that freedom that Christ has intended for us. Amen. Let me give you one last verse, write this in the margins of Isaiah 55, and put it right next to where you wrote John 10.10. It's John chapter 8, verse 36. And I'm going to leave you with this. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Those are powerful words that you can share with somebody. When somebody comes to you and says, you have something about your life, and I don't understand, how, how do you get through all this stuff that you've been going through? you start freaking out on the inside, going, oh, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, oh, Jesus, help me to say the right words so that I can... That's all from the enemy, okay? You have just been given a script. Memorize it. And if you can't memorize it, make a Xerox copy and put it in your pocket so that when the moment comes, you can go through this little outline that we just did and you can lead someone to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can then say, God, not only am I praying for the harvest to be come, to come and for workers to go out, but thank you, God, that I got to be a harvester. And I guarantee if you do it once, it's addictive. You're going to want to do it again and again and again. And you'll begin to find greater comfort, and greater ease in finding that discussion and how to share. The Bible is full of many, 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 many outlines on how to lead someone to Christ. This is simply one of them. But this is very succinct. Two verses. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. And you can lead someone to Christ. Of course, you need to have the rest of it kind of fill in the, you know, all the gaps and stuff. But if you have nothing else... Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found, so that he can pour out on you abundant pardon. And there's a lot of stuff in between we can talk about if you're interested. Let's pray.